The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Hello, everyone. Today we bring you an interview with Jeff Rasmussen and Eric Kaufman, two Army veterans and undergraduate students at the University of Connecticut. We talk about what life was like in the Army, as well as the transition from Army to the university setting. This was a really interesting conversation, and we hope you enjoy. We'd like to start by asking you both, you know, when you made the decision to join the Army, why you did it, where you came from, and what the Army was like when you first joined. Sure. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, thanks for having us on. <laughs> so I decided that I wanted to join the Army uh, my senior year of high school. I was kind of lost. I was looking for direction. Wasn't a great student. I'd say freshman through junior year. Mm -hmm. Didn't really do anything extracurricular. And so I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. And especially where I'm from in my hometown, joining the military is seen as a very respectful career path in many of the local cafes. If you were in the service at some point in time, they have a picture up of you. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, uh, homecoming parades for soldiers who are who are coming back from war and things like that. And so I thought that it would give me a sense of purpose. I kind of got my act together by my senior year of high school. I started putting more time into school and to thinking about my future. But I thought that I wouldn't have the correct level of discipline to go do a four-year degree. And I also didn't have money to go to school. And so everything just kind of added up. And that fueled my decision to join the Army. Now, in Missouri, like you're saying, because it's more of a respectful decision to join the Army, do you think more people joined the Army out of high school? I know where I'm from, there were two kids uh, who joined the Army after graduation out of a class of 250, so that's a very low percentage. Mm. So is it more frequent? Oh, absolutely. I think my graduating class was like 249, maybe. It's so mm -hmm. not the same. And I'd say at least 10 of us. Wow. Okay. Maybe yeah. between 10 and 15. Five times higher, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. Thinking back, my junior, senior year, we had people from the military come by and do recruitment pitches sure. to a, the entire school. And we regularly had like the Army and the Marines and the Air Force come to our high school and eat lunch with us and try to get to know us and things like that. Mm. It's very much a part of the culture. It's a respected thing to do. Meeting people from all around the country, I can say that in the Midwest and maybe also the South, it's maybe a more common thing to do. And also just like by virtue of being in the military with so many people, just anecdotally I can say that many more people that I met came from the Midwest mm -hmm. or the South mm -hmm. than say New England or maybe the West Coast. Sure. Now Eric, your story is a bit different because you're from Connecticut. Mm -hmm. so. Was your influence or decision to join the Army a bit different than Jeff's, or do you have the same feelings? Um, I think in, influentially it was similar, so I was kind of looking for a purpose. Mm -hmm. I had gotten out of high school by the time I was in the, I decided to join the Army. I had spent about a year and a half at Middlesex. I had spent a summer in Boston. I was also not a great student, probably much worse in terms of like strict academics, but I did play sports all throughout mm -hmm. high school. I was a musician. At this point in my life, I had this dream to go to school in Boston and study music. Even if my grades could have gotten me in, 
I still had a nagging feeling of, I don't know if I want to spend my parents' money doing this. Sure. I don't really know if this is what I want to do. I don't think I need to go to school to play music. So coming from the North, being a resident of Connecticut, the military is viewed a certain way as well, just differently. So I, being an athlete, wanted more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. I've been a runner my whole life. I was doing adventure races with my friends at this point, like traveling to Vermont and whatnot to do these things. And I thought it would be a physical challenge enough. Uh, at the recruiter's station in Middletown, they would do uh, exercises with us, mm -hmm. so kind of prep work. And it was meant to, to kind of be like a wake-up call for a lot of people that wanted to join the military because, again, it's a sheltered kind of view from Connecticut. A sure. lot of the kids that were in that group with me were going because they wanted to shoot guns and they played a lot of you know the video games thing. And I was going because I wanted to prove my own physical strength kind of a thing mm -hmm. and I would run from the shoreline area to Middletown which is about 20 miles just to work wow. out with them and wow. um, that only happened a couple of times but like I was really really gung-ho joining just to kind of give a perspective of my mindset mm -hmm. um, once I decided to make the decision but again with the school so I ended up flipping a coin to decide whether I was going to go to college literally Literally a coin toss. Wow. I I wasn't. I had. A, I was supposed to register at Southern Connecticut the next morning, um, but I was really on the fence with the money situation. I've got a younger brother, and I was like, "Is this where our family's money should be going?" And I'm like, "If it comes up tails, I'll I'll just join." And then it did. And then I walked in the wow. recruiters instead and blew off college. And then uh, how did your parents take that? Yeah, my mom was pissed off. Yeah. Uh, my dad is not like a military dad, mm -hmm. but he was in the Air Force. His father was Special Forces. He encouraged the military. Both my parents are super supportive. I have a great relationship with them. So they would support me regardless of, of what I would want to do. But my mom's kind of a hippie. So she wanted me to, <laughs> she wanted me to drop out of school and play music sure. instead of do anything. So, you know, that's kind of how it was with them. But yeah, no, they were super, super supportive. Just, yes, uh, there was a bit of a delay. So once I signed up and actually like took like the, the oath, um, it was about a six-month delay between leaving Connecticut and going to basic training, and that was a party. So we just <laughs> did almost like bucket list type of things. Sure. You know, so. What about you, Jeff? How did your parents take the news? Um, like, mind you, we both joined when there were two wars going on. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> like, I mean, now there's really not... I'm not sure. I think they officially ended it in Afghanistan. Iraq's definitely over. But at the time, they are both still going on pretty strong, right. uh, especially Afghanistan. So my mom actually thought it was a good idea and was, like, very supportive of it. That fits her personality. Like, she would want me to go and... I think just by virtue of it, of it being, like, an honorable thing where we're from, she wanted me to do it, I think, partially to brag to her friends about it, but I think also <laughs> uh, she wanted me to do it because she saw the same lack of discipline in me, but I think she also thought that I need to be validated in some sure. way. But I kind of thought that I was a loser coming out of high school, and I think that she viewed that this would be a good thing for me to do. The My, respect you earn also seems to then also be cast upon your family as well, that you're now a, an army family, right? So like oh yeah, you, yeah. you making that decision also gives her the respect that she's the mother of someone in the right, army, right? Yeah, and I mean, like when I came home from my deployment, she had like yellow ribbons tied to the trees and like this banner and everything. Wow. It was this big deal for her. And so like... I mean, obviously, it stressed her out extraordinarily, um, especially when I was deployed, but ultimately she thought that it would be a good thing for me. My father, he was a little bit more hesitant. I mean, 
obviously because of the wars going on, but also he didn't think that would be a good soldier. He thought that you should maybe try to go for a different branch or that like he thought it was just going to be too tough for me. And um, I, I think that he had this image in his head of basic training and being like a full metal jacket, Stanley Kubrick kind right, of. Right. And um, I mean, there are elements of that, but that's also a pretty, you know, exaggerated sure. version of what it's like. So, yeah, so he didn't think it was a good idea, but I think it was more out of just fear for me and what mm-hmm. I was going to go through. So how was basic then moving forward past that and getting into the actual your time in the army with like support and mixed support from family? Yeah, so you said you had your six-week party and then day one training starts. Does the realization hit you or are you now more excited? So it's funny like the differences in how we kind of like approached it because like there's this creed you have to memorize called the soldier's creed. And like I knew it before I went to basic and I was like really just kind of trying to over prepare. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I think Eric saw it more of a challenge and <laughs> yeah. just kind of, like, an adventure. There were times in the Army where I couldn't tell you the Soldier's Creed, and that's, like, a basic thing of being a soldier. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was more like a physical challenge for mm. me. So this is also kind of a funny thing, but, like, your basic training varies just from having a different drill sergeant. You can have a much different experience. But they're also largely different based on where you go to basic training. So some are notoriously harder than others. <laughs> and I went to Fort Leonard Wood for mine, had a terrible time. It was brutal, (laughs) and I barely got any sleep, and we constantly got yelled at. But it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. The whole time, I realized that it was doable, and it was Mm -hmm. just mostly a mind game. Mm. And not to mention, I had a girlfriend at the time. Most Sundays, we got maybe an hour on the phone so I could talk to, you know, my family. We still had that support. Another thing that I think you find out very quickly in basic training is just how much the people around you matter. Because mm-hmm. if it was something that you're going through alone, it would be too much. But everyone's going through it together. So you have all these people that normally wouldn't be friends, normally wouldn't talk to each other, that, sure. that form kind of this, this brotherhood in a short period of time. Misery loves company. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> have you had the same experience, Eric? Uh, similar. I will say that it is interesting because I had gone for like a challenge. And like Jeff was kind of explaining, there's something for everybody. So physically... I was underwhelmed. That's not like I'm a tough guy. That's uh, I'm coming from the north, and my military family background led me to believe that it was going to be like surviving the cut, mm-hmm. where we were going to be, you know, like no sleep and getting screamed at and doing push-ups like for like hours. He on comes end. from a long line of studs. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's being humble, but he comes from a long line of studs. <laughs> but but it was it was underwhelming in that aspect because it is. It's just you know it's very talked up and it's really designed to get. A mass of people from right. all different backgrounds to be able to cooperate efficiently or at the bare minimum learn the tasks that they are required to learn, mm-hmm. their basic tasks, you know, to then go on because a lot of people don't realize this about the military. I didn't even realize it until I was halfway through basic that you go to job training after that. So you do your basic training, which is a flat nine weeks for every single soldier, and then you get shipped off into your different category for whatever your specialized job is, and then you go to your unit, provided that you don't have language training or anything else. Mm -hmm. But with basic training, I wanted more physicality 
but there was also things that were very difficult for me, like three square meals a day. I mean, I was a runner and I'm used to, you know, snacking, mm-hmm. eating a lot, it just goes through me. So I was really upset and I was having a hard time. I also had a girlfriend at the time and that became this huge debacle. You know, our first phone time, we're all crying on the phone. Right. You know, I miss my mom. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 20 years old, but I'm crying because I miss my family so much mm-hmm. now. So it is. It's a real, real big wake up call for a lot of people. And I wasn't even the worst one. There's a lot of people that break when they understand that they're going to be unable to do things that they wanted to do or see people they wanted to see or their future is uncertain and there was like Jeff was saying a lot of mind games a lot of the things in basic training are built for you to fail because it's not about success it's about how hard you try you know there's something for everybody and it was you know the culture shock Mm -hmm. um, the lack of sleep the lack of whatever it's definitely a challenge, and it was it was tough. It was a lot of fun, a lot of difficulty. So you think it's more psychologically difficult than physically difficult? Or is it just sort of the shock factor is then compounded by the physical exhaustion, both lack of sleep and physical stress? I'd say that it's as hard as football camp, if you've ever played football. It's like they're going to make you do pull-ups and push-ups. Mm-hmm. Sometimes until you throw up, they're going to make you run. But if you come in... In as good a shape as Eric was, it's going to kind of be a joke. But that's also because, like, they take people who are... Not in shape. Very, very yes. much not in yeah. shape and then have to make them functional soldiers. And quickly. So, yes. Yeah. So they control what you eat. They control how much you eat. They control how fast you eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they want to make you throw up, they'll take you directly from the chow hall to a tire pit. It's just cut up tires. And they'll just make you do up-downs until you vomit. It so it's like... really funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the psychological factor is a lot uh, more of an impact. To Eric's point, there are people breaking down day one mm-hmm. to the point where they had to go home because wow. they just couldn't. The reality of it was too much because they put you in reception for a while. They have mm-hmm. to process you. They have to give you all these shots. But there are drill sergeants there, too. And so there were a, a surprising amount of recruits who were on suicide watch wow. who were like wow. in reception like just got there didn't even go to their actual basic training unit yet and were already suicidal and so on my first night it was my job for like two hours out of the six hours that i was supposed to sleep to walk around with the flashlight in this room where everybody was on suicide watch and make sure that they like were asleep a and B, not trying to kill themselves. Wow, that's insane. And that was like... And this is your first this night. This is day one. This is day one. He's like 18 at the time. Yeah. And they just hand you a flashlight. Yeah, flashlight <laughs> and make sure no one kills themselves. It's like wow. four in the morning. So it's like... What an introduction to the month. Right. So like on top of the fact that I'm like homesick and heartbroken yeah. and scared. It's now like, you're now responsible it's like, hey, for these lives. <laughs> nobody better kill themselves in this room. It's just like... It's just... It's such an immense... But like it's also... In some ways it's a call to action. Like if you're looking for that kind of adventure if you're looking for that kind of like that experience then like the seriousness of it has to hit you because that's the only way you're going to focus in on it that's the only way you're going to actually take it seriously so the seriousness and the just fear it is good and the drill sergeants use that they keep that going (laughs) throughout the nine weeks uh utilize the kind of fear to motivate you but yeah a lot of people do break and regardless you're going to learn a lot about yourself i mean i didn't know how to do laundry when i showed up to basic training and like had to grow up pretty quickly Mm -hmm. so all right so then you get to your jobs after basic training Mm -hmm. so what jobs did you both have 
We are both human intelligence collectors, so that training takes place at Fort Huachuca and what was it, like 20-something weeks? 19, so just under six months. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I had Christmas in the middle of it, so they extended it a little bit. They give you a week or so to go home. Yeah, just to give some perspective on this, the jobs can range drastically in time windows that you're spending with the training. I know MPs actually stay at their basic training. What's an MP? Uh, Military police. Thank you. Military police stay at their basic training, and they have an additional nine weeks. There are, like, crypto linguists, people that deal with computers and coding, Mm -hmm. that have something like the buddy was telling me it was just shy of two years oh my and gosh. this is all on your contract so your contract when you sign the military can be vastly different as well i signed up for um just under four years i know people that sign up for six or eight or further you know so when are you appointed these positions this is after basic training that you then choose from a list of possibilities so all branches are a little bit different but one thing that's consistent throughout is that you have to take the ASVAB, which is like a, the military version of the ACT or the SATs, and there are different components of it. And it's more than what like an SAT would encompass because there's like a mechanical portion. Mm-hmm. There's I think there's a physical portion. I'm not... There were a bunch of questions about that. It was an aptitude test, so there mm-hmm. are questions that you weren't supposed to be able to study for. And yet, there was mechanical, electrical, as well as I believe basic math. There were like eight categories or so, and that essentially, as he's saying, determines which jobs you're eligible to sign a contract for, and then that's pre-basic training. And then you graduate basic training, you know, become a soldier, and then go to your training at uh, potentially a different location, graduate that, and actually get like a certification. Gotcha. Um, So beyond the test, you're just able to pick from then that list. So it's up to you at that stage? That's interesting because in the Army... Like your ASVAB score unlocks a range of jobs depending on what you mm-hmm. scored. Like if you score really well in all areas, you're able to do anything. The Army, at least when we joined, lets you pick what you want to do. Okay. Other branches of service, from what I understand, tell you. Like so, let's say you scored really well, but they need a cook. Yeah, that was be a cook. Wow. Why I didn't join the Marines? I know a lot of Marines that love the service. I just know that that is something that the Marines do is they don't give as much of a choice. Mm-hmm from my understanding, Mm -hmm. as the Army. So there are all these different categories on the ASVAB, but the most important, I think, is your GT, right? And that's like your general... General technical. General technical. And so, like, each service has the lowest possible GT score you can get. I want to say the Army's was the lowest, but they were all similar. Mm. I also believe at the time you had to have a high school diploma or a GED to join, and now they're just doing high school diplomas. During a time of war, they are a little bit more lax on their recruitment because they want more numbers. Mm -hmm. And then in a time of peace, they kind of tighten it back up. Sure, that makes sense. So now your job training, is that pretty heavily classroom-based? Or is this field field work as well? Our job required a lot of, like, interpersonal training. Mm -hmm. So we had to first learn, like, the legal ramifications of what we were doing we had to learn kind of like the history and the background of the laws established in the geneva convention and how wars are fought and things like that and what you can and can't do Mm -hmm. and then we would learn techniques and then practice them and all the while this is happening so like in basic training you do qualify with an assault rifle and you do pt physical training and you do uh, like land navigation they'll just basically give you a map and a compass and a protractor and say find these points gotcha and you continue all of those in your advanced individual training in your AIT 
at the same time as learning a new job. So if like basic training is like high school where everybody has to go through it, then AIT would be analogous to like a trade school or like a college and that like there's so many different mm -hmm. fields you can go in. But you still practice like the fundamentals of being a soldier. They say you're a soldier first and then a whatever second. You still have to be proficient with a weapon. You still have to be in a certain shape. You still have to learn. You still have to practice your land navigation. What other things do we consistently do that were? Land nav, PT, um, tradecraft. Didn't, didn't work on any on visa Battle at that drills, point. maybe? Battle drill, yeah, DNC. There was a lot of oh, that. DNC. The, DNC, yeah. DNC, DNC, drill and ceremony, drill and ceremony. So, so like marching, mm. yeah, like uniform inspections, <sighs> yeah. room inspections. Oh, yeah. they, they still kept all of the fun shenanigans from basic in, in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was beneficial that uh, they continued those aspects of? So, the like basic and AIT fall under uh, trade doc, which is what training. I want to say doc doctrine, doctrine, yeah. but like yeah. So it's like. Any army school that you go to is going to be harsher than the actual army is. Mm -hmm. Kind of like how college is such an incredible workload. When you go to work a nine-to-five job, it's not as intense. Mm -hmm. But if you can get through college, then you can work I gotcha. proficiently. So uh, I think that's the mentality. But with that said, like you do still have to qualify on weapons in the regular army, and you do have to pass PT tests pretty frequently, and you do have to have uniform inspections. And so they're more stringent on what they look for, usually, in a trade doc scenario. However, you do have to continue doing those things mm -hmm. on the outside. So now your training was 19 weeks. You have eight weeks of basic training. So it's about nine months, and you're now in the army, officially? Mm -hmm. You are officially, are officially employed? Or? Yeah, so like you're like a trainee when you go to basic. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or like a recruit, I think it's called, I'm not sure. And then you're officially a soldier once you pass basic training. And then you are officially a an ex. Your job yeah, title. When, when you graduate AIT. And then basically they decide what unit to put you in and you just go. Yeah, so then what is your day-to-day -day life like post-job training? So now that you've secured this job title... I'll, I'll go At over... At least for you guys, specifically in the job that you worked yeah, in. Yeah, I'll go over, like, the deployment day-to-day, -day and, Eric, if you want to hit the, just, like... Garrison. Garrison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I was in for four years and 34 weeks. Also, this is another, like, subtle nuance to how the branches do things differently. If you sign up for four years in the Navy, your training is included in that four years. You sign up for four years in the Army, your training's not. So... My training was 34 weeks total. So it's like, yeah, maybe nine weeks for basic, but there's also like a week of processing. Mm -hmm. And like, same for AIT, plus if there's like a holiday, then sure. you So um, of that four years, I was in garrison for three years, which just means you're at an actual base. I would say stateside, but not all bases are in the United States. You know, there's some in Korea, Germany, Japan, all that. So I spent three years in garrison and one year deployed. Deployments vary a lot way more than garrison life does i think from person to person it depends on what your job is where you're deployed at what time you're deployed there mm -hmm. um, some areas are way worse at certain time points than others i went to the saladin province in iraq in 2010 i was there for a year and we started out at this place called cobb spiker cobb is contingency operating base it's like a large large base there's a subway on it wow. there's a green yeah. bean on it like Jeez. there's actually some uh, this is in Iraq. This is in Iraq. Cobb Spiker was formerly like where the Iraqi Air Force trained, and we took it over and then made Cobb Spiker. And so that's where like 
a lot of different units were. Mm -hmm. Specifically, one company from the, it's, it's not really important, but we're military intelligence and military intelligence units get assigned to bigger units. So like one company gets assigned to an entire brigade. So maybe 200 people get assigned out to maybe 10,000 people. Wow. And so my specific battalion that I was assigned to was in Tikrit, was in Saladin province. The company specifically that I was assigned to, so maybe 200 people, uh, worked out of a little base in the Beiji oil refinery. There's this huge oil refinery. I think they were responsible for 70% of Iraq's oil output. Mm -hmm. And we had a little tiny base in the middle of that. It's maybe the size of two football fields put together. And the day-to-day -day was just working. So there were three platoons there and a headquarters platoon. Headquarters platoon just kind of does whatever they, like if the captain wants to go out with a patrol, they will escort the captain and the, the first sergeant, whoever. But the other three platoons kind of have like a day. So like on one given day, platoon A goes out on a patrol. Platoon B has guard duty and like is manning all the towers and like doing sergeant of the guard. So making sure the generators are filled with gas mm -hmm. and whatnot. And then platoon C is on quick reaction force, meaning if anything pops off in the area, they're boots on ground in like mm -hmm. in 10 minutes. But they'll also use that day for training. And for example, when you first get in country, they do like training where, at least my unit did training where, they would like put on all their gear and just run. And it's 120 degrees there. They would just like try to push their bodies to the extreme to acclimate. So things like that. So there really aren't days off on a base like that. I know that some people got, you know, like a day off, maybe two days off if they're at like a larger base. But on a smaller base, if somebody in the company is doing a patrol every day and then you also have to run security and you need a QRF, you have to do something. There's no dead space. So there's maybe 100 of us on the base. And yeah, so my job was usually going out with patrols on a daily basis. Or sometimes I went on two patrols a day. Sometimes I didn't have to go on patrol. And then when I got back, I would mostly just write reports and talk to the higher-ups back hit cop spikers. So there was, I'd say, very little downtime within that year. On patrols, leaving the base mm. and going into whatever place of interest. Yeah, so correct? yeah, so in, I was there when Operation Iraqi Freedom 3 transitioned to Operation New Dawn, which was supposed to go from a combat role to an advice and assist role. Mm -hmm. While I was there, nothing really changed. But that's to say that like Saladin province was one of the more historically dangerous provinces to go to. It's where Saddam Hussein's from. And one battalion for this entire province is definitely definitely scaled down from years past. Like if this was during the invasion in 2003 or the surge in 2006, we'd have multiple battalions there, but just one battalion for this entire area was a lot. They're um, outnumbered. Yeah, for sure. Our company had... Uh, Beji and surrounding cities, and there were like over 150,000 people there. We would still go on raids and things like that, and ambushes and things, but we wouldn't have nearly as much of an offensive role as in years past. We were working a lot with the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police force, because the idea was, in the next few years to come, we're going to pull out completely. Yeah. And when we do, it can't be a failed state. We wanted right. to make sure that they can, so we did a lot of training with the Iraqi army, tried to show them how we do things, our battle drills. It was a lot of like our lieutenants meeting with their officers and trying to talk tactics and things like mm -hmm. that. But yeah, 
with that said, somebody was leaving the base and going out into a city on a daily basis. Wow. And so then what is Garrison like? Garrison is tough. I was stationed in Hawaii and Oahu for three years, and that is brutal, guys. No, it's weird. It's really surreal. So you're working a nine-to-five, essentially. But the thing is that for the job of an intel collector, you can't really do unless you're out on deployment. So what the job essentially entails is mock reactions, uh, scenarios of what you would be doing, you know, either in-house with your platoon, which is an element of about 30 or so people of the same job, or you're working to do basic soldier drills. So like Jeff was saying earlier, the same stuff from earlier with basic and, and AIT continues on. So more DNC, mm-hmm. more weapons qualifications, you may be asked to take up another responsibility so you can qualify. You know, you qualify with a rifle and basic training, but you may be assigned a pistol. Um, you went to aerosol school. Yeah, you can get assigned special schools. So I went to a school, which is interesting too, because the army uses the word school um, and air assault, for example, was two weeks of just uh, working. Gosh, it was it was from like four in the morning, and then you actually got out pretty early, at like a decent time. It was like four in the morning, like four in the afternoon. Um, two weeks through no weekend, and it was qualifying you to jump out of helicopters. And army schools have a educational component, and a lot of them are rites of passage. And air assault was a big rite of passage school, so it was very much a physical endurance gut check type of thing there you can get shipped off and, and essentially do languages we had uh, buddies that applied for special forces i became a driver for my platoon so i got qualified to drive humvees and lmtvs which are like troop carriers with big canvases on the back they you might see them with the guard driving around every once in a while um and then you have you have nights and weekends off unless something comes up if you you can get called in at any time essentially for a training exercise but you would usually know in advance there are other duties like command of quarters which is a fun one where you get to sit and essentially defend the barracks so you are positioned at a desk in the barracks the living quarters mm-hmm. of the single soldiers there's usually two people per shift shifts are 24-hour periods where you are there in case of an emergency essentially and you can't fall asleep. Can't fall asleep. Yeah, not supposed to fall asleep. So, <laughs> you get in a lot of trouble if you fall asleep. Yeah, I don't know how PC this is, but the balls watch is when it's like 2 in the morning, you're going like this over and over. You know, <laughs> you're nodding. Head, yeah, yeah. nodding off, I think is the polite term. And then um, what else? There's also uh, PT regularly. So you have your 9 to 5, and then prior to that, you wake up and do physical training with your platoon. And then Are you rising through the ranks as yeah, the years go by? Yes. I'd imagine it might be slower than in deployment, but I think it's just a, a respect thing. So when people sure. come back from deployment, it's just different. You yeah. mean, it's known that they have experience now, and they actually, on your uniform, you get to wear a patch that symbolizes that. Like, when I graduated air assault school, mm-hmm. I got to wear a badge that just said that Certified I did that. Yeah, 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 that you can wear on your daily kind of uniform. So yeah, you rise through the ranks in garrison. The biggest difference is your jobs. So certain jobs have less people and it becomes easier to get promoted in them what was the analyst the foxes that were yeah they were able to get promoted super quick it also depends on your job because yeah like you're saying we were in a company with intelligence analysts and these guys will kind of like get all the reports that are coming through their desk on a daily basis and kind of create like a powerpoint slide to brief the Mm -hmm. 
and it, their job is obviously more in depth than that, but they are, you know, well, the intelligence analysts, and so they have to brief the higher ups every day. For whatever reason, you can kind of soar through the enlisted ranks, or at least that's what we saw. We saw people coming in and becoming a staff sergeant in four years, which is really quick. Um, yeah, does it bother you when somebody sort of leapfrogs you? Yeah. Like they started later than you and then they reach a higher rank earlier? So, for example, the intelligence analysts, like what we saw, how quickly they could rise to the ranks. So when I was in Garrison, I was in the same military intel intelligence company as Eric, which is a very different culture than when I was with a line unit. When I was deployed, I was with an infantry company. Mm -hmm. And their rank is a lot harder to obtain. And so, like the difference between a private and a private first class or a private first class and a specialist, which is the next rank up, could mean like the difference between being a team member and a team leader in some cases. Like conventionally it's a sergeant, but like some units are short staffed. And so the difference between being a team member and a team leader could be you're going on this very risky patrol and I'm not. Yeah. So it means a lot more, whereas kind of the jobs that are stereotypically safer or I don't know. I don't know how you put it, but but let's say stereotypically safer. Um, rank means a little bit less and is easier to obtain. For example, in a military intelligence company, privates and sergeants regularly joke around and are friends and can go out for food and whatever. And in a line unit, like an infantry unit, at least the one that I was in, uh, it's like you're an entirely different cast of people, wow. like officers and non-commissioned officers, so sergeants and the like, and then uh, lower enlisted didn't fraternize really. And I think that the underlying reason for that is if you are a sergeant or if you're in a leadership position, you're not supposed to be too close with any of the people under your command because there's a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. And also because the reality of the situation is you could deploy with these people and lose somebody. It happens all the time. And so, you know, if you're too close with somebody, obviously that's going to affect morale. Sure. You also don't want to play favorites because like there's no shortage of extraordinarily dangerous things you have to do if you're deployed and everybody should get their fair share yeah you need objective mm -hmm. leadership right, right right and that obscures the objectivity of it so now when was it during your time towards the end that you decided that you wanted to go to college after you got out or when did you decide you weren't going to re-enlist and um you know how long did it take for once you're out of the army to then join college so this is another place where Eric and I differ greatly in kind of an interesting way. Mm -hmm. So, let's see, at the time, I was considering staying in the military. I made sergeant two and a half years, and then they wanted to send me to the staff sergeant board so I could get my staff sergeant by four. And I had a, a warrant officer at the time who was telling me, I can send you to this school if you re-enlist, I can send you to this school, I can send you to this school. And they wanted me to stay in, and they were kind of grooming me to be a warrant officer someday. And the problem that I had with that was that at the time I was already a squad leader, so I was doing the job that a staff sergeant would do. That would have been my next promotion. And then it could have been a long time before I actually got into warrant officer candidate school. And I would have had to stay a squad leader for a considerable amount of time, I guess is what I'm getting at. Even if I was able to go to all these cool schools that mm -hmm. I wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was just kind of being overworked. We were supposed to deploy to Afghanistan, both of us, and actually my contract was running out. I was going to re-enlist just for that deployment. 
and our platoon had a shortage of people with deployment experience. And so because I was one of the only people there that was going to deploy in this next deployment with deployment experience, I was going to some pretty hard schools to get some training that I needed for the deployment. When I came back, I had to manage a squad of two teams, and I had to do a lot of the, like Eric mentioned, we do training in garrison because we can't actually do our jobs with U.S. citizens. Um, <laughs> and so I had to create a lot of the training doctrine for the, not create it, but basically regurgitate it from these schools to create these training scenarios for the, so I was being really overworked. And one big difference from the military and civilian life is that if you're higher up doesn't have such a high opinion of you that day for whatever reason they can tell you exactly how they feel and this just kind of wore on me to the point where I thought I could do something else yeah. and still succeed mm-hmm. and I learned the discipline that I need from this and I have the confidence in myself now to go to the civilian world and go to college and make something of myself there I don't need this specific lane to be happy in life But I did almost stay in. It just kind of got to the point where uh, there are a lot of politics in the Army, and um, I just didn't want to keep running that rat race. I have nothing, like, bad to say about the Army in general, and I tip my hat to people who stay in for 20, 20 20-plus years. Um, But I just knew that it wasn't for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, though, college was always on the table for me. My father was the first one in his family to go to school. My mom was the first one in her family to go to school. And maybe it was her brother, but she was of the first generation. And they both ingrained in me from a very young age to go to school. And they told me, you know, if you want to work a blue collar job or you want to work a job that doesn't require a college degree, that's fine. But like 40 years old is a rough age to find out that you don't want to be, you know, a carpenter. Yeah. Because, you know, so, so mm. get an education, do it when you're young. And then so that way, if you do want to work something else, you at least have a fallback. You have more options. When I was in the military, I was taking online college courses. Oh. And, you know, I knew that even if I stayed in, I was going to get a degree at some point in time. Yeah. What about you, Eric? So as Jeff mentioned, we were supposed to deploy in 2012. And that didn't happen. Higher up decisions, big armies, usually what we say. It was a whole thing with, uh, from what my understanding, money. For whatever reason, it didn't. Yeah, they were scaling down. I remember Obama came down and cut half the projected, or like the proposed deployments to Afghanistan. Ours just so happened to be one of them. So that ended up having just a really weird effect on me. I wasn't sure how to feel from what everything everyone was saying was it was a particularly dangerous area of southern Afghanistan to the point where Jeff was going to re-enlist just so we wouldn't lose as many people potentially. So part of me was very excited that that, you know, wasn't like I could hang out in Hawaii. And then a big part of me was also very uh, frustrated. I found out while I was on a field training exercise along with the infantry guys, and they were visibly angry to where they had to have their leadership come and get a huddle and calm them down because they were so upset because again the the infantry kind of is the same in that aspect where if we are not deployed we really lose a lot of our purpose right Mm -hmm. and for the a-type personality of people that join the military and join infantry um or join the type of intel that we do where it's more forward it's hard for people to sit around and do that and that was my difficulty with 
garrison life, it was especially difficult because I couldn't be the guy that complains about living in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Nobody understands <laughs> that. Um, so I really felt like I was kind of purposeless once again and underutilized once again. And a lot of my upper leadership wanted me to go like think about Ranger or Special Forces. Again, not like a tough guy thing, but uh, I have family that's done that. I've had friends that have done that. Um, I'll step in again because Eric's too humble to say it. Easily the best candidate for Ranger or, really? or SF in the company. I know I'm a smaller dude. It's not like a physical strength thing. It's just how much crap can you take? Kind right. of like how long can you stay awake? Um, Dur how, you know. During our during our like stress events when they're trying to like break people when they're trying to break people like Eric would be laughing. Yeah, like it, it, was, it was just it was the middle of just jeez. It was the mental toughness that they were looking for. Yeah, and he had like it. it was all just fun. Right for him, whereas other people were other actual soldiers who had gone through Tradoc were starting to break or give up or have a bad time. Wow. My thing was that I didn't want to go further down the rabbit hole. I was so disenfranchised at this point with kind of, again, before I say this, it's, and it's about to sound like a bad action movie, looking back, especially the Army, I wouldn't be who I am today without it. I have a lot of good to say about it, mm -hmm. but it does have a lot of politics. I spend so much time thinking about that that I don't think there's anything that I would be able to do differently had I been or would I be in a position to make a difference because it's an organization that encompasses such a wide spectrum of people and types of people. So it's just kind of a nature of the beast type thing, but I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. The politics were really tough for me to deal with seeing, again, people get promoted yeah. in front, you know, because I didn't want to jump through hoops. I felt like I was good at my job. I was more physically adequate than the majority of my peers. And I was seeing people climb through ranks for reasons I felt it, it was undeserved. Um, so I didn't want to go further down the rabbit hole in the chance that more of that would be what was mm -hmm. in store. Um, so I was contemplating doing that, but I was mostly just um, pretty ready to get out. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I also, five years later, and I can barely grow a mustache, so SF really wasn't in the, in the cards, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, thick mustache. Yeah, you, you do. It's got <laughs> to be. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I was about ready to get out pretty soon into into garrison life uh, yeah. as well. So you both are now very successful students at UConn. So let's segue now to talk about what it's like to be a college student a few years displaced from the normal trajectory. So after the Army, now you've gone through this tremendous life-altering experience shaping you to be the person you are. And then you enroll in college where you're now taking classes with students who are younger than you, right? And probably less mature, um, I don't know, how do you feel about how you navigated that and whether there was less support for you or if you kind of felt like you were doing it alone type of thing? Does that make sense? Yeah. Initially, I went to school in Colorado, University of Colorado, for a year. And then Eric actually got out of the Army and convinced me to come to UConn. Really? There were, oh, yeah, wow. there were actually a couple other factors, too. Like, I knew by that point in time I wanted to study neuroscience. Their neuroscience program was really in their psychology department. It was mm -hmm. new. It wasn't very competitive. I was on med school track at the time, and so UConn had obviously has a much better uh, sure. program suited for what I was looking for. So yeah, then I transferred here. I got out of the Army when I was 22, almost 23. It was in 2014, and then I got out in, let's say, February, and then that August, I started school in Boulder. 
And I say that the biggest difference right off the bat was that I felt, especially during my first semester, actually during the first semester, like I don't think the shine had worn off the apple yet. That was college. It's a great experience, especially how much uh, freedom you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of everything just kind of being laid out for you and what you have to do every day, you can do literally whatever yeah, you I want. Yeah, I mean, and not class. having anybody breathing down your neck. Oh, yeah. Was it intimidating at all to have that level of freedom after so long of... No, I was ready yeah. for it. I was yeah. definitely ready for it. That was something that I think no matter how much you like being in the army that's something that you wish you they call it playing by big boy rules like in army units that are smaller like special forces or rangers or something like that especially like a special forces unit they quote unquote treat you like an adult so basically here's the goal mm -hmm. we're at point a we need to be at point b it's up to you to do it it's much like research in that respect yeah, it's yeah. just like here's your goal figure out how to do it whereas in the big army as they call it which is like everybody else what we were in everything from point a to point b is delineated yeah yeah it's like i heard from the platoon sergeant what i'm going to do so then i tell the team leaders they tell the team members the platoon sergeant learned from the platoon leader mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who learned from the company captain who i mean the chain of command it literally just goes all the way up so and you can from you know let's say a colonel's position all the way down to a private everything is plotted out the structure is incredible and there's no breaking that structure. Unless you want to have a terrible time, there's no breaking <laughs> that structure. And so um, I would say that the freedom wasn't intimidating, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I think that kind of got me through the first semester. Definitely by the second semester, I realized that there was kind of a void. And that was kind of what I was talking about in like what you learn early on in basic, in that, like, yes this is a rough experience, it's a mentally challenging experience, but you're going through it with all these people, and so it doesn't feel empty. Whereas in college, it's like also, I mean, a very different experience, but still a very mentally challenging mm -hmm. experience and a, a psychologically draining experience. And I felt as though I was going through it with nobody because it's not that I can't make friends in my classes, but I'm a 23-year-old war vet and I'm talking right. to an 18-year-old kid, it's like, we're not going to have the same things to talk about. And I, yeah. and, and I do make friends in my classes. I am like still a relatively social person, but like, good luck having like a real bond and a friendship when there's so much of a, of a difference there. But B, like, you don't have that same camaraderie, that same companionship from like the other people in your unit. Mm -hmm. When you live in the barracks, like Eric and I did, you are living with people that you spend 12 hours a day with, like on the same floor, sometimes in the same room. When you're in Tradoc, sometimes there are 60 bunk beds in a room, just a big open room. And so you have like all of these people around, like sharing the same experience with you. When you go to college, there's nothing there. And so like, it's too old to join a fraternity, just didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> Never really appealed to me in the first place. Sure. There is a student veterans association in which a bunch of vets try to get together and do things, but I never really uh, was terribly too interested in that. And so I would say that that was the biggest difference it was like all of the independence that i felt was freeing but also what came with all that structure in the army was this camaraderie that now yeah you don't get so that was a little difficult to adjust to but with just i think me at least i just kind of conceptualized what you know i was mm -hmm. what i was feeling what i was going through and was kind of able to adjust to it you feel the same way kind of um about i don't really have jeff's 
thousand yard stare yet because I didn't deploy. (laughs) I kind of had the mind of a child going into it. But uh, yeah, I I do. I mean, I'm going on 28 right now and I I interact with a lot of people that are like 18, 19, which isn't anything to do. I I know plenty of 18 year olds that are more mature than me. (laughs) Uh, You know, people are people kind of a deal. But yes, in the general grand scheme of things, it is. It's kind of an isolating experience, especially as Jeff was saying, going from zero to 60, right. going from somewhere where you're living with your coworkers to somewhere where it's like, especially UConn being such a large school, you know, a lot, a lot of the UConn students I talk to, especially the commuters, have like two or three friends, which is totally normal, which is a lot. Um, but yeah, it can be it can be tough. And then I've joined plenty of clubs um, where I made friends and everything, but it's something that you need to go out there and do. And yeah. especially with Jeff's schedule as a PNB major, <laughs> it's tough. Right. But yeah, and also with the veteran thing, um, I want to keep more of an open mind with going and and reaching out to those groups that are trying to reach out to us. However, I don't like being targeted as a vet. It feels weird to me, especially having not deployed. Like there's a whole unspoken thing within the veteran community as far as the deployment thing goes. Mm -hmm. And then also like we have interests, we have things that we like to do. um, And we're people I'd say like, you know, we'll happily talk to anybody about the military within what we're comfortable with, but we are still, you know, we still have like plenty yeah. of interest. Like I joined the gaming club and I joined uh, the filmmaking club for a little while. So right. I mean, yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, I'd say I say yeah. I'd say yeah. Um, we kind of jumped past what we had talked about before we started recording, which was the two week class after you leave the army to train you yep. to become a civilian. So I wanted you guys to talk about that and. I don't know if we can then use that to segue into what you want to talk about, Jeff, to say how that class might not give you the greatest breadth of information regarding possibilities after exiting the Army. Sure. So when I was in the Army, they called the program ACAP, maybe Army Career Alumni program, program something like that. Now it is Soldier for Life Transition Assistance Program. And I can say that when I went through, and again, this was in 2014, I'm sure they changed it considerably, but basically if you are transitioning from active duty to a civilian life or like to the reserves or to, you know, if you're, if you're leaving active duty, there was about a two week course where they teach you things that will better your chances for success in the civilian world. For example, they will teach you how to write a resume properly and how to dress for an interview and one of the kind of th- this is also something that I wouldn't have expected before I joined the army but you get a lot of people who join when they're 18 I did mm-hmm. and the army gives you a housing allowance and oftentimes if you have a family and you're living on base you'll live in a house that is taken care of by the military and paid for by the military and you never even seen that pavement so you never have to make payments on a house. You don't know what that's like. You don't know like what to look for when you're going to buy a house. You don't know what shopping around for insurances is like is because they have kind of like this socialized healthcare. So let's say that somebody did that for 20 years. Now they have a family, you know, a wife and a couple kids or whatever, and now they're getting out and they have to pay bills. They have to look for insurance. They have to maybe look for a new job and they never had to do that. Um, it is important from the standpoint of, you know, like kind of teaching an old dog new tricks kind of thing. And so while a lot of them are kind of common sense for us who like, you know, I worked jobs in high school and then like I so I know how to apply. I know mm-hmm. how to put together a CV or resume or things like that. And I was going to have to apply to colleges. 
but um, that's a program that they make all soldiers do. The idea is they don't want soldiers to leave active duty and just be hapless in the civilian world. And one of the things that I was, so I did four years and got out, and as did Eric, what was four or three? It's like four. It was like a little, was over, a little over three and a half. Okay, the, okay. Yeah. like four. Um, and a lot of us veterans in our twenties use the GI Bill to go to school, and some of us don't though. And when you sign up for the military, sign up for the army at least. I can't speak about other branches, but I know they have the GI Bill as well. They will offer a GI Bill in your contract. And unless you say, I don't want to go to college, I, I know for a fact I don't want to go to college, they'll put it in your mm -hmm. enlistment. And I remember, like, I was at the recruiter's office one time and somebody was saying, I don't want it. And the recruiter was actually, like, trying to convince them to yeah. take it. Like, you don't want it now, but you might want it later. Because mm -hmm. what's the consequence <coughs> if you put it in and then you don't go to college? It's, there's none, yeah, right? Nothing. You don't lose. Yeah. But that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. So, like, the GI Bill, the GI Bill's been around for a long time. It started in 1944 because you had these returning World War II. Well, World War II, I guess, wasn't officially over till 45. But mm -hmm. you had these World War II vets that the army wanted to help them go to school when they were returning. They thought it would stimulate the economy in the long run. And the GI Bill has changed since then. The one that we're using now, the one that Eric and I are using, is called the Post 9/11 GI Bill. It started in 2008. And I think that one of the biggest differences was previously they would give you a lump sum for tuition. I think it was $48,000. And they'd say, here's your tuition, you kind of spend it however you want to, but you have to show us that you actually used it mm -hmm. to, to go to college. Mm -hmm. The post 9-11 GI Bill is different in that it pays the tuition directly to the institution and then also gives you a living stipend on top of it. It's more advantageous because most schools you can't just go to for $48,000 yeah. for a four-year degree. And I don't think that that one has a living stipend as well. So according to the undergraduate admissions website, the estimated cost for attendance here at UConn, if you're an out-of-state student, which I would have been if mm -hmm. I, you know, being from Missouri, if I would have wanted to come here from 2019 to 2020, including tuition, fees, housing, and meal plan, is over $53,000 wow. for a year. So for, the old GI Bill would not would even cover one year. So, yeah. I mean, but this is for out-of-state. I know that for the post-9-11 GI Bill, even if you are an out-of-state student, they, because it's, I don't know, because it's through the government, maybe maybe because the Department of Defense, I'm not sure how they work it, but they make it so that it's in-state tuition. I see. If you are a veteran with post-9-11 GI Bill, you can go for in-state rates. And so they'll pay up to a certain amount intuition per semester and then if you go to a more expensive college a lot of them have what's called a yellow ribbon program in which they will match i think how much you pay or how much the gi bill pays or something like that so they try to make it easier for you to go i was looking at wesleyan at one point in time i believe they have something like that so even so in-state tuition at most state schools like most state government-run schools, the tuition would be covered by the GI Bill. UConn is covered completely. But a four-year degree with the tuition, fees, and housing and all that would be over $200,000 if you were just to do it on your own. Uh, out of state, with the post-9-11 GI Bill, they pay tuition completely, and you get a basing housing allowance for uh, alternate change uh, mm -hmm. based on your uh, zip code. 
but for stores it's almost $1,800 a month for a full month of school. If each semester's three months and you do eight semesters for a four-year degree, it's somewhere around $43,000 in basic housing wow. for that time period. That's and if you work good. over the summer, it's mm. definitely feasible, especially if you have roommates and things like that. And you're saying many people don't use the GI Bill? Yeah. So like I said, they push you into doing mm -hmm. it, even if you're not, because if you, let's say you're a lifer, let's say that you stay in the military for 20 plus years, okay. but you have the GI Bill. If you've served for, I think it's 10 years, you can give your GI Bill to a member of your family, to your wife or your children. So they're like, even if you don't go to school, you should do it anyway because wow. you can transfer it. And then that's $200,000 that... <laughs> right. And literally the requirements are a high school degree and 90 days of consecutive service in the military. So Eric, you were saying that there was somebody who was like Coast Guard and they got called up for... Um, I remember talking to several people that are National Guard. I know that it's a certain number of days. So as a National Guard, you can elect to go active, you can either enlist and transition into active, or you can take on a deployment. If you hit that 90-day mark, consecutive, so a drill weekend wouldn't count, but a consecutive 90 days, I believe it's 90 days, uh, fact check, but um, should give you eligibility for 100% of the GI Bill. So with that said, in 2014, there's a poll conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation. It was published in the Washington Post. It said that of veterans from the global war on terrorism era, so mm -hmm. Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, only 48% of vets with the GI Bill were actually using it. And in 2017, the number of GI Bill users dropped by 4% according to the Military Times. And that's, to put it in perspective, that's almost 35,000 vets less are using in comparison to last year. Is that to say that these vets are not going to school, or they're going to school and not using the funding that the GI Bill They're offers? not going to school. They're not going to school. The post-9-11 GI Bill's been around for about 10 years. It's the first year in which vets have actually gone to school less on the GI Bill. Wow. So one of the things that right. I've Even been, with this incentive. Even with the incentive. They're still turning down the incredible. to go. There are a lot of factors at play. Like, the unemployment rate for veterans is very low. Mm -hmm. Most of them get out, and they have a job lined up. There's a part in the Soldier for Life Transition Assistance Program in which you send out resumes to prospective jobs. And there are plenty of vet-friendly yeah. uh, um, companies. companies. Sure. So, But even with literally a full-ride scholarship in which they're paying you right. a living stipend to go to college, over 50% of them uh, aren't. And so I want to, in the near future try to create kind of like an educational module or like a class to pitch to the Soldier for Life TAP mm -hmm. program in which it explains the benefits of having a four-year degree a little bit more. They do kind of, from what I understand, they kind of have a module in which they talk about the GI Bill and the benefits, but they, they don't really cover a lot of the incentives for... Sure actually having a it's like an explanation degree. of this is what it is rather than what can you get if you go to university for four years Absolutely. and get a degree with this program so is yeah. some level of ignorance like do you think behind why it's being utilized less or i think that a lot of the times people are just especially the younger people who i would like to target with this more if you're getting out and you're retiring you're getting a stipend mm -hmm. Or yeah, a lot of people who have been in the Army 20-plus years, they have connections to where they can go work for a contracting company yeah. or something like that. If they don't want to go to school, that's completely that's reasonable. If you are entering the workforce at 24, you have the rest of your life ahead of you. And so 
I think that there is a degree of, like, for example, like I said, my both my parents instilled in me from a very young age how beneficial it would be to go to college. A lot of people don't have that. Yeah. And so within that module that I'd like to pitch to this Army program, I want to cover the differences in annual earnings from people aged 25 to 34 just from having a four-year degree. The unemployment rate is cut in more than half if you have a four-year degree, mm-hmm. uh, things of that nature. Also, anecdotally, there are plenty of young vets, early 20s, mid-20s, who were disenfranchised with their time in the military because they were more of like a free-thinking type, they were more of like a contrarian or would try to push back against authority. Mm -hmm. So they had a a difficult time in the military, I guess is what I'm getting at. And so I would like to kind of, in this module, express that the GI Bill is a good opportunity to, for example, if you were to go into research, you know, Research labs are looking for people who are free thinking and who will ask a question, say, well, why are we doing this? Well, what's the, that's one of the first things I had to learn in our lab was to always ask questions if I don't understand something. Right. Whereas the military is very much opposite of that way. And so, yeah, I want to go over like the tangible benefits to going to school. And then also a lot of people go directly into like a trade. For example, Mm -hmm. if you were like a... Uh, I, I don't know. I was, uh, if I didn't mean to cut you off, I did that as well. I went to and um, attempted to drive semis. I mm. picked up a license through the military to, as a platoon driver, really liked it, and uh, was thinking about doing that, so I looked into that, which is another thing that the GI Bill will cover. It covers trade schools. It covers uh, wow. apprenticeships as well. I think you can get your pilot's license. Get your pilot's license. Like, like wow. It yeah. covers most trade schools, and you still get the BAH. Yeah. Also, the BAH is oh sorry, basic allowance for housing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a stipend. stipend. Um, when I was going through, they had a ten-year limit, and if you didn't use your benefits in the first ten years after separation, they're gone. So really, I had to start school six years out. A lot of people couldn't do that because of financial situations, what have you. Or let's say you get medically boarded out of the military. Like if there's something that happened to you physically that keeps you from soldiering. Mm-hmm then you can get kicked out of the army as harsh. They medically board you out of the army because you can't... Um, you can't perform your duties. Can't perform your duties. Right. And so, liability at that point. Right, exactly. And so, like, maybe somebody like that, if they were... They could still use their benefits but might have a hard time doing that directly out of a, a situation that, that right. would take an adjustment period, potentially. Now, I think this was passed within the last year, but the Forever GI Bill mm-hmm. makes it so you have four years of school paid for for your entire life. Wow, and that's, so it's really good. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an amazing program. Eric, I remember you initially weren't thinking about school. You were initially, I remember the CDL. Yeah, so it took a really long time for me to kind of decide what I wanted to do. Yeah, like uh, Jeff was just saying, the CDL. So I, I had gotten a uh, license to drive the platoon vehicles. I had wanted to do that potentially full-time. I went to NETS, which is a truck school. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up not pursuing the driving as a career because I ended up coming to UConn because I didn't want to travel as far at the time and a variety of other reasons uh, that the, it may not have been a great fit for me. But it was only... I think just shy of six months, so it hit on my GI Bill, but didn't expend it fully and allowed me to still come to UConn and use that as well. Nice. And so now that you both are here, I mean, you're seniors now, right? Both of you are seniors? I'm going into my junior year. You're going to be a junior. I spent last 
fall working instead gotcha. to try and you know, kind of save a little bit of the GI as I was applying for my program as well. Right, and so the program you applied and now got into was the Accelerated Master's program in the NEAG School for Education. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm doing NEAG, so I'm going into my first year of NEAG where I'll be interning in a district as a teacher. Again, came into UConn looking at chemistry, looking at mm -hmm. biology, not entirely sure, kind of was uh, able to. I, I wouldn't have uh, come to UConn. I wouldn't have come to a four-year university had I not had this GI Bill accessible. I would have gotten probably the quickest thing I could have within reason to get back into the workforce. I mean, getting out, You Jeff was just about you were 24 when you got out, just about, and then I was as well, because it was a bit of a gap between us, right? You were like 23. Yeah, somewhere in there. But yeah, I mean, so I, I was ready to get into the workforce and would not have, have even considered school had I not been able to um, use, the GI Bill. use the GI Bill. So when did you know you wanted to become, or what made you decide that you wanted to become a teacher? Oh. And specifically, what type of teaching are you interested in? Yeah, thanks. Um, So I work at a high rooms and leadership course. I've been there for three years now in Middletown, and we work with all different demographics and age groups of people, a lot of athletes. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of it, adventure learning, so I teach people how to build fires, try and trigger frustration and fear and help them overcome it, mm -hmm. things like that. And, uh, it's like microdosing basic training. Yeah, microdosing <laughs> basic, <laughs> basic training. <laughs> um, so it's fun and rewarding, and I have really kind of fallen in love with working with the middle school age groups. The activities that we do are very simple. They're very character revealing. That's kind of why we do it. They foster communication. And going back to what Jeff and I were kind of originally talking about, how we weren't the best students. Yeah. So kind of why I want to teach was because I wasn't a great student. And I feel like I can connect with those people. I know I do at this workplace mm -hmm. and uh, kind of trigger the ability to learn, you know, instead of being more of an encyclopedic person, I'm yeah. trying to connect with them and being like, listen, buddy, I was exactly where you're standing. And, um, and learning is cool. And also in the military, in garrison life, when we had a little bit more free time right. in deployment, I became a little bit obsessive about learning things. I felt so kind of underutilized at certain times in my life that I was trying to learn languages or skills. I would just just delve in those just random wormholes on the internet and try and learn about like you know just why how things work and it really kind of helped me see the value of education so and and it's great that the gi bill allowed me to be able to pursue that and find what i think i'll be good at and, and a good fit you know well i think it's awesome the idea that you want to be a role model for these kids at the middle school level when a lot of people don't necessarily have a strong personality or strong role model to say like you're saying like i've been in your position Here's how you can get out of it. Here are your opportunities. Here are, you know, certain things you can do to sort of find your character earlier on in your life rather than, I don't know, being delayed or something. And it's not to say that the experiences you guys had were not helpful. I think what you've said is that you're tremendously glad you went through what you did, but it is nonetheless paramount to have a strong role model at an early age, right? I agree. I think middle school is a great age group for that. I never thought I would want to do middle school. I think about how cringy I was in middle school. Right. But I know that they're great because they're at that age where they are old enough to have a conversation with, but young enough to still make an impact. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, you work in the lab with Victor and I, and we're a, kind of segueing out of this, but more of a neuroscience lab, and the work you're doing is neuroscience-based. Does that relate to your job as an intelligence collector, or is it just happenstance that those are two similar psychology-based uh, approaches? 
not to continuously plug the GI Bill. <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> but one of the reasons why I think it's so important is you have this idea of who you are when you're like 18, and then that so rarely ends up being, I mean, there are people like everyone knows somebody that wanted to be a doctor just like their entire lives or something like that, but most of us kind of have a hard time finding what we wanted to be. When I left the Army, I still didn't really know. I knew that I could succeed. I had the confidence and I had the discipline mm -hmm. to know that I could put time into something and do well. And I think that was invaluable, but I still didn't really know. I knew from my experience as a human intelligence collector that I really enjoyed psychology. And so when I started going to school in Colorado, I started out as a psychology major. And that lasted about a semester. <laughs> but I, I find psychology very interesting. I just Everything that I learned about in my introduction to psychology course was a theory. Mm -hmm. And even if you had like amazing data to back up whatever your theory in psychology was, you could only like strengthen it. You could never really like prove. concretely prove something because mm -hmm. there are always outliers with psychology. And so I wanted something that was a little bit harder of a science. And then we had this module on neuroscience and, you know, the light bulb kind of went on. And from there, I... I was a neuroscience major for a semester there and a semester, I guess, over the summer, so really two semesters, and then I came to Connecticut. So one of the reasons why I want to push young veterans to use the GI Bill is that, like, I started out thinking that I wanted to be, like, a psychologist and ended up here yeah. investigating the role of the minor spliceosome. <laughs> and I'm really passionate about it. I really like it. Yeah. But I, I didn't even know what a minor, I didn't know what a major spliceosome was. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I didn't know what neuroscience was. And so the GI Bill allowed me to not only kind of explore what I wanted to do, because, you know, you think when you're in your mid-20s, you kind of have to have it figured out. And you can't, like, keep exploring yourself like you could when you were 18 or 19. The GI Bill allows you to do that because you're going to school for free. There isn't that added pressure. Mm -hmm. And you're getting paid to do it. The government is encouraging you to get an education. And with that, you take a few classes, and within a year, you can really start to hone in, I think, on what you want to do and what you don't want to do. I forget, what was your major when you started out? I was undeclared. I think I was going for chem. I think I was going for straight chem at UConn. Mm. Yeah. yeah, chemistry or bio. But I was I was unsure between the two, and then now I'm doing general science for middle school. Wow. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah, you find your path. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? yeah. And also, I think one of the nice advantages that him and I had and other veterans who can use the GI Bill after like three or four years of service or even a longer time mm -hmm. is that if we have enough life experience to the point where we know how important it is to find something that we really want to do, whereas I know that personally if I would have just gone into college at 18... I would have probably been so overwhelmed with just like the yeah. stress of going to college and the difficulty of college courses that I might I might have been more, you know, worried about my success as a student than like actually figuring out what I want to do. And I think when I came into school, I was more mature, I was more of an adult, and I was able to kind of look at it from an analytical standpoint. Okay, could I see myself doing something like this for the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean, it segues back to what you had said about how you were confident that no matter what you chose, you'd be successful mm -hmm. in achieving that goal. 
So once you had that instilled in you, you had the freedom to then choose what you're most interested in, rather than many people joining college right away out of high school and maybe not having that confidence, like you're saying, being stressed about being a successful student rather than finding the correct career. Absolutely. So it is definitely a balance that you kind of have to weigh for yourself when you're exiting high school of, am I really ready for college? There is definitely a significant percentage of people who do enter college too soon mm. and fall victim to what we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think what you're proposing with uh, you know, teaching information and presenting the benefits of going to four-year university or even maybe like a two-year associate's degree or something sure. is seemingly an essential amount of information that you should have on hand once you leave the Army. And I'm sure it's just kind of fallen through the cracks. Like, they do tell you about the GI Bill, right? So it's not like they're hiding this from you. They're saying this exists. It's just how much can you communicate in that two-week program? You know what I mean? They're doing so many other things. They're doing so many things. And, like, there are so many different applications to it that you can just hit on briefly, not just going to trade schools and things like that. But let's say that you want to go work for your family. Let's say that your father's electrician and you want to go work for him. If you have a full ride scholarship to get a degree in electrical engineering, right, <laughs> you can still be an electrician, mm-hmm. yeah, and you'll have more options, right? Or let's say you wanted to get a degree in business management, and so that you can end up taking that to, or just something that you're interested in. I mean, it's four years, but it's paid for, and it gives you so many more options, regardless of what you want to do. Right, it can help make you a better whatever. It can also give you more options later in life. A lot of people who were in the Army for 20-plus years get out and do something completely and totally different because they've been working on a degree the entire time and just kind of have this shift later in life. Mm -hmm. And we have the opportunity as young veterans to do that in our early 20s. So... I don't mean to interrupt just when you guys said electrical engineer. That's such a difficult, like notoriously difficult degree. I remember you were talking to me, and if I'm way off base, stop me, about how you also wanted to kind of allow younger veterans coming out of the military to just try and encourage them in the sense of where their mindset is at, that coming from where everything is laid out for them and where mm-hmm. they're kind of told, kind of shut up and listen for the greater good, which is fine, it's the way the Army works, that they can go into a university where there's no safety net right. and, and still succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. I think that, like, I was okay with the structure and the discipline. There are a lot of people that just feel claustrophobic in a setting like that. And also, for the more free-thinking type, it can be discouraging being in the Army because no matter what your personality type, you are going to look for validation. Let's say mm-hmm. you join the Army. In part, you are doing that to be, like, validated as part of this bigger thing, as part of this respected thing. And if you are more of a contrarian, if you're more of a free thinker, you're going to get beaten down more so that you fit into that structure. Yeah, yeah. that's one of the things that I wanted to communicate to those young veterans who are maybe disenfranchised with the way that their Army experience went, is that this is the right idea right. in that you can utilize that. The that way energy. you think is not mm-hmm. wrong. Right. It can be leveraged to be... It's just not uh, right assets. in that respect. Yeah, right. and I think, that and context. we, yeah, and, and we met people who spent four years in the army, training themselves into thinking that they were wrong, and training themselves into thinking that that's unacceptable. If you yeah. can't make it in such a structured environment, how are you going to make it when sure. there's no structure? But there's a different side to that. You can utilize that freedom. All right, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Um, this has been awesome conversation. I don't know if you guys have any maybe advice to young veterans, or you know maybe any sort of 
experience you can share as a last little memento of you know the benefit of having gone through the army and or how to navigate the decision making process once you've left the army if there's any concluding remarks either of you want to contribute i would just say briefly to really take it seriously if you reach out to somebody that you don't know if you say hey i'm interested in neuroscience and i know you don't know me i'm a veteran and i want to get out and start studying this i'm interested in what you're doing people are incredibly friendly to veterans by and large mm -hmm. and also like the military setting is stark contrast to like a liberal arts college campus and sometimes that can be intimidating sometimes that the setting is so different there are usually large student veterans associations at most major colleges and it's important to not be shy and to go out and ask around to ask the shadow people ask them what they do on a daily basis so that you may not know exactly what you want to do when you get out of the army whether or not you even want to go to college but you should have some sort of idea because as soon as you get out those paychecks stop mm -hmm. your insurance stops your meal plans stop and a lot right. of people don't have like a strong family structure to go back to to rely on for a summer until yeah, you go to school yeah. or something mm -hmm. like that so life comes at you really fast when you're getting out of the and army so i'd say yeah. prepare for it I say congrats, you're free. Um, uh, but yeah, no, as just saying, explore, ask questions, don't be afraid to fail. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, yeah that was great. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Office of the Provost and the Office of the Vice President for Research. Thanks for listening.